Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The world is full of magic and wonder, if you know where to look. And I'm obsessed with looking for it. I'm Simon Sinek, and I host a podcast called A Bit of Optimism. Each week, I have a short conversation with someone who inspires me or teaches me something about life, leadership, and other curious things. I hope you'll join me on the journey. Listen to A Bit of Optimism on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only Todd Rundgren. Todd, good to have you. Hi, Bob. How goes it? <laughs> uh, it goes pretty well, other than uh, being locked up in this COVID era. So, uh, you're going on this virtual tour this winter. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I was supposed to be out this year in May and June as part of my regular touring schedule, and then that got moved. Uh, to uh, July and August, then it got moved to October, November, then it got moved to next February. (laughs) And then when they moved it from February, I said, all right, enough's enough. That would have been, by the time I go out on the road, it'll be two years since I've done a tour. And that's too long a time for me. If I don't do it with some regularity, I start to wonder if I can do it. So I decided that I would, uh, do this experiment, which is actually something that I've had in mind for a while. The uh, impetus for the idea has to do with um, with global climate change and how it's affecting a transportation system. And I had already made some um, pretty major adjustments in the way that I travel. Instead of doing the usual major markets, couple minor markets, major market, driving the whole way. Uh, we started playing multiple nights in major markets and kind of encouraging people from the minor markets to travel. And I would travel less. As a matter of fact, we travel maximum under that schedule, probably two days a week. But it involves flying instead of driving. And I was finding myself um, ever more often on a panic mode with my travel agent because a flight got canceled or or fatally delayed or something like that and that would usually be due to an airport being shut down because of a weather event and that's when i started to think um this is going to happen more often how 
what's the backup? You know, how can you deliver a show uh, if uh, the physical world won't allow you to do that? Uh, and that's when I first started thinking about it. But I had not at the time considered the possibility that the audience wouldn't be able to make it to the show. So that's how we wound up with this full virtual tour. The fact that nobody can actually come come out. And so instead of me um, hitting uh, the places that I would have played, but maybe presenting it in a way that still resembled a live show, in other words, do it in a club or a theater that has video projection. Now the audience can't go to that club or that video theater. The whole thing has to be home delivered. And so that's what we're doing. We're doing 25 shows, each localized to a market that we would have played and uh, allowing, well, pretty much allowing anyone to go to any of those shows, but for the markets that are locked out because of prior agreements and each show will have the flavor of the place that we would have played. Wait, 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 just uh, so I understand. So the shows are geofenced is what the original publicity say. Are you saying if the show is in San Francisco, someone from New York can go? Uh, yes. The geofencing, we had the paradigm a little upside down at first. Um, we thought, okay, geofencing will involve determining all of the, you know, the uh, IP addresses that fall within a certain uh, municipality, let's say, and then only allow people who had corresponding uh, IP addresses to buy a ticket to those particular markets. Uh, as it turns out, you know, there are a lot of people who might be just on the other line of the uh, other side of the fence. And it's a hard fence. You know, it's not like, uh, uh, not like a fence you can see through, put it that way. You either get it or you don't get the show. And a lot of people who might've driven to a show in a particular town suddenly couldn't get to the show via the geofencing. And we realized the only use of it at this particular point is to protect those markets that I've made prior agreements not to play in. So uh, you can be in one of those markets that I didn't agree to play in and then pick any city that you would like to be in with the caveat that we will be, as performers, we will be pretending we're in that city. Okay. Certainly fans are, they just want to hear they can go into any market and uh, watch the show. In many cases, fans would watch multiple shows. Let's go back to something you said earlier. You said, well, you don't know if you still can do it. Is that emotionally? Is that physically? Is that musical ability? Well, you know, there is a, uh, a controversy about mask wearing and social distancing and all that. And we're kind of on the side of playing it safe. We're creating our own bubble when we go um, to actually do this show. And we fortunately, because we're doing it this way, don't have to get into the controversy about wearing or not wearing a mask at a certain gig. The, uh, I think the thing is that in most cities, 
they have relatively stricter uh, gathering policies as opposed to rural areas that may have much more lax gathering policies. So, for instance, we were operating on the assumption, because we're, we'll be doing the shows in Chicago, we were operating on the assumption originally that uh, we could have up to 25 people, live people in an audience. And, of course, they would all have to be masked and, and isolated and that sort of thing, or distance, not necessarily isolated, but six feet apart at least. And then there was a surge, and that got reduced to, like, 10 people. Uh, so we don't know, actually, by the time we get uh, to doing the shows, exactly how many live bodies will al be allowed to have in the space, in our performance space. Uh, and that would be the same probably in any major city. We would have no idea until you act, until the day of the show exactly how many people would be allowed in the venue. So uh, there is that. And then there is the fact that we are, uh, we are proactive about, about continuing to use uh, suppressive strategies while we're still in a pandemic. Even though it'll be uh, February and March for us, we're not counting on the fact that uh, vaccines would be available to us or the major part of the audience. Okay, but earlier you said if you don't go out that regularly on tour, irrelevant of COVID, you're not sure you can still do it. What exactly did you mean by that? Uh, I don't go out and just stand in front of a microphone with acoustic guitar and strum and, and sing all the ballads. My shows are, even nowadays, as much physical work as I've ever done in a two-hour span. Uh, it not only requires um, the singing and the movement, uh, some shows require uh, extracurricular <laughs> above and beyond things like when I do a, a Wizard of True Star, which was supposed to be half of the show that we were going to do this year. Uh, I go through, uh, how many was it? It was 12 costume changes in an hour. It was like every 10 minutes I had a different costume change. So Yeah, I've seen that show, right. And that's the show, you know, that's the show that hopefully next October, half the show will be that and half the show will be the individualist tour, which uh which I did uh in twenty nineteen. Okay, so there's a lot of physical activity. Do you like performing live? Or is it more for the revenue or what what's driving these tours? I really like it. I enjoy it. I always feel, you know, worn out and a little bit beat up after a show, but very satisfied. It's two hours of aerobics. You know, it's all because you're singing the whole time. So it's all about, you know, your, uh, how much wind you have, you know, and utilizing that, especially when you're singing and running around the stage at the same time. I just feel like more fit afterwards. And I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy singing. Uh, there was a time in my life where I was terrified to sing. And as time has gone on, my voice has actually kind of aged well. 
and in some ways gotten a little bit better and my stamina has gotten better. Uh, I understand my voice a little better so I can use it more effectively. So I really enjoy the singing. I enjoy the singing. I enjoy the interactions with the audience. And to what degree does the audience affect that particular performance? Would you change anything, whether it be song selection or delivery, uh, as a result of where the audience is at vis-a-vis you? Well, this is not that kind of show in that um, it's sort of a review and it's got a flow to it. Uh, There are shows that I've done where uh, I will just call the songs out to the band. You know, we won't have a set list and I'll see how I feel and see what the audience response is like and then, you know, figure out where to go from there. We have a a virtual audience as well. There'll be uh, a number of these video panels with people's faces on them. Uh, You may have seen such a thing at uh, NBA games or uh, America's Got Talent where the any TV show where they think the audience is a significant part of the of the process. So we'll have that. We'll be able to see people's faces and people can buy essentially one of those seats, which will be the equivalent of like the first three or four rows of the gig. And uh, that will be interspersed with any with the number of live bodies that we're allowed to have in the venue at the time. Uh, you can figure that you can assume that in a uh, in a multicast thing like we're doing there'd be a certain amount of round trip time. We do an event, like I say, boo, and it takes some number of milliseconds to get to the audience who are out there somewhere. And then any response they have to that will take some number of milliseconds to get back. And it may not be the same for everybody. So uh, there's a little bit of lag in the audience response, uh, in the virtual audience response which is why it's good to have live bodies there because they respond instantaneously to whatever you're doing. And also it's, you know, in a certain sense, maybe easier to hear them because the uh, people in the uh, virtual audience, while they have a screen to themselves, you know, with their head on it, all the audio from the audience is being mixed into one feed. And so, you know, we couldn't pick out, you know, if someone was yelling, woo, or something like that. We wouldn't be able to actually pick out who it is. Um, and so, it, you know, it's great always to have some, uh, at least some live bodies in the audience. I mean, we, we enjoy playing a, a sound check and having the people who work the bar applaud for us. <laughs> That's good. Okay. You live in Hawaii. And when this was set up, your manager said, okay, it's two hours behind or ahead, depending on how you want to look at it. And Todd doesn't start until noon. Are you a late night person? Is that basically your schedule? Um, It is. Uh, The daytime can be full of uh, various activities and interactions, and there are people coming in and out of the house all the time. And it's often not until very late at night that um, when all of the external distractions subside, I get a chance to really think hard about all of the things that I'm involved in, what it involves from me, uh, 
boring down into the further details of uh, of things like uh, I like me just realizing the other night that I needed a musical director <laughs> because the one who usually uh, is in the band is not able to travel with us. And that's a significant thing to slip my mind because I have so many things to worry about, so many details in terms of the show. I can't be uh, attending to everyone's issues regarding their own particular part. That's just just one of the things that occurs to me when everything gets a little quieter. Let's say hypothetically, everybody in your house was out of town. You had no assistance, whatever, and you had to start during the day. Would you be as productive? Or is there something about later in the day in the darkness that loosens things up? Uh, it may be, uh, it may be the darkness. We have a rare moment of quiet here, as you may be able to detect, because uh, living out here in the in the countryside, as I do, it seems to be nonstop landscaping. Somebody is running a lawnmower or a weed whacker somewhere, <laughs> and. And the noise doesn't abate until like until sundown, you know, until it is actually dark. So even if the house was empty, it, there's likely some sort of droning noise or something that disturbs the quiet. As a matter of fact, it isn't even that quiet at night because I got toes and frogs in the pond out here. <laughs> They'll go off, but eventually I can tune them out, you know, and just uh, kind of think about the things that I need to think about. Okay. Why Hawaii? Uh, I live on the island of Kauai, and I started coming here in like the mid-70s just to get some peace and quiet for myself. And all through the 70s and 80s kept coming here. And in the early 90s, uh, I had a, a video animation studio that I was running. And we had a big deliverable and I took everyone to out here to Kauai after that deliverable was made. And it was about eight months after a hurricane, hurricane called Hurricane Aniki, which was like 180 mile an hour winds. And the eye went right over the island and completely flattened it. And we were out here staying in a condo because none of the hotels were open. And I thought, well, I had always fantasized about living out here. If, if there's going to be any affordable real estate opportunities, this would be the time, you know, because everyone's been blown off the island. So looked around and looked around and was about to give up and then found the property that I'm living on now. And it took uh, uh, moving mountains essentially to get it. A couple of things had to coincide and did finally get it, but didn't build on it. And then it was the mid-90s, and we were living in Sausalito. And we're pondering on it because life in Sausalito is getting less uh, idyllic. Uh, For one thing, Silicon Valley, which, you know, I moved out in the mid-80s, and it was still, like, huge fun. Uh, The whole hacker scene and stuff like that. I would go to the hackers hackers conventions and hacking it meant you know just doing the most you know balls out uh computer coding and stuff like that it wasn't necessarily about 
breaking into other people's systems. As a matter of fact, there was no internet yet. <laughs> so, or at least nobody was using it. So, uh, it was a lot of fun. And then, you know, it became a gold mine and all of those engineers, all those fun people got re replaced by investment bankers and all the musicians and artists and stuff who used to live in Mill Valley, they all got pushed out by investment bankers, you know, who would, you know, be on their cell phones driving 90 miles an hour through the Waldo grade. <laughs> and so, and at the same time, this is when some serious gangster rap is happening. Uh, the kind where people get, get killed right next to Sausalito is a town called, uh, Marin city, not a town. It's a development actually. And that's where Tupac Shakur came from. And we're living in Sausalito right next door. And my, uh, my adolescent son, you know, my 13, 14 year old son is telling everyone that he's in Tupac's posse. <laughs> you know, and there, we hear about gang shootings and stuff in Oakland is happening all the time. These gang rivalries. But we fortunately find out at the same time that my oldest son is something of a baseball prodigy. And we say, OK, what we're going to do is we're going to find a baseball school in Honolulu for him to go to and get him out of this gangster scene, you know, and we'll all move to Kauai. And get away from essentially, you know, the investment bankers and the gangsters and and start again. And that's essentially what we did. Okay. I'm sure your kids weren't happy about that. But, well, some uh, were and some weren't. Um, <laughs> younger kids weren't so old as, you know, as to be as bothered by it. Okay. So you ever get island fever? Up until now, never. <laughs> Like I've never spent a lot of time like dreaming about going to other places, but, uh, yeah, I spent so much time on the road. I mean, in the past couple of years, especially since about 2010, when I started touring with the all-star band and that became like half of my touring life. And then my own thing was the other half of my touring life. And then other sorts of events like, appearing with the Metropole Orchestra in Amsterdam or other little one-off things, I might find myself on the road as long as 10 months a year. Wow. And at that point, when I realized I had been on the road 10 months a year, I said, this has got to stop. We have to sort of, you know, reverse this. Eventually, my stint with the All-Star Band ended, so that gave me back more time. But through all of that, I, you know, I was always pining to be home. You know, I was like, I don't get enough time at home. I don't get enough time to forget that I've got another flight to take off island again. So when I got back home in February from uh, a rock cruise that we did, sounds scary, doesn't it? <laughs> it was in the Caribbean, so it hadn't hit there yet. But I got home and was expecting to be back in uh, uh back on the mainland in April rehearsing for my show that would have started in May and gone through June and suddenly that wasn't happening that got moved and then I realized okay I'll be home until July at least and then I realized 
I'll be home until the fall. And then I realized I'll be home until next year. (laughs) So that's when I started getting more serious about this virtual tour thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I have like in my head, a whole list of places where I'd like to go as soon as I can, uh, as soon as I can go there, (laughs) as soon as they'll, as soon as they'll allow Americans there. Okay. Are you the type of person who's been around the world and seen nothing other than hotel rooms or stages? Or when you go to places, do you seek out the cultural elements, you know, food, friends? Uh, That's the reason why we're localizing all of these shows. Uh, We, the traveling is the worst part. You know, trying to get there is the worst part. Being there is usually pretty great, weather aside, you know, but, you know, all of these places that we're about to play virtually, we, you know, we know them in a sense. We know fans in those cities who show up to every show. Uh, There are walks that you like to take, uh, landmarks that you know, restaurants you like to eat at. It's great at at being in some of these cities. It's great having a day off in some of these cities. And uh, that's part of why we're, you know, working on this self-hypnosis exercise so that we actually believe when we do the show that we're in that city, that Mm -hmm. we're in uh, Mm -hmm. Buffalo or Baltimore or wherever it is that we're playing. I don't have all the dates in my head. Okay. Now, as you say, you were working on the road up to 10 months a year. You're someone who's had a lot of recording success, not only as yourself as an act, but producing other records. At this point, if I told you you couldn't go on the road ever again, economically, does it work for you or do you need to work to you know pay the bills? Probably at some point I'd have to work, but I'm not in relative to like me, which is like, I have this weird thing about money and so I never and never have known how much I have unless it's all in my pocket, you know, and then I can count it. But I have had since the time I had any money at all, I've had an accountant or a, or a business manager who worries about all that. And I said, don't tell me how much money I have. Just tell me how hard I have to work or tell me that I can take some time off, you know, whatever. That's all I need to know. And there have been points in which I've been well underwater uh, because of various circumstances, like after the um, after the mortgage collapse in 2007, 2008, this house that I'm living in, we finished it in 2008. And then suddenly all of the equity in it disappeared. And I was holding a mortgage. In a, in a world of collapsed finances, that was like three times the actual value of the house at that point. So I've had, you know, I've had ups and downs at this particular point in my life. I'm actually doing pretty well, ironically enough. And a lot of that has to do with, uh, uh, with regression of rights. Um, you know, there's some sound in the background. Right? Yeah, you know, it's a freaking frog, and I will shoot him. If I have oh, it's to. a frog! Then we can leave. It's part of living in Hawaii. Okay. Yeah, it's a frog in my, uh, okay, not in so my throat, us, in my pond over here. Okay, tell us about your situation with reversion of rights. 
uh, by uh, some uh, act of Congress or multiple acts of Congress. It used to be that um, if you recorded for a, a record label, the masters would belong to them in perpetuity. Mm. You know, you would have them for infinity. Uh, uh, same thing with certain publishing rights and things like that. And often artists, if they didn't feel like those rights were being handled properly or they felt that they should rightfully own them, they would have to sue whoever owned them. It was a big ongoing mess. So by an act of Congress, uh, they made it statutory that after a certain number of years, like 30, 35 years or something like that, uh, the masters could revert to you. And all you have to do is make a request to the master owner uh, and tell them uh, like in a, like a year before, say, I am going to get, I'd like to get my masters back. And what often happens, uh, especially if you have a big catalog like me, a deep catalog, is they will say, uh, well, we'd rather not um, give up those rights. We'd rather keep those rights. We think there's value in them that we can uh, realize. And so we will advance you an obscene amount of money <laughs> to, go, to retain the master rights or retain the publishing rights or whatever. And a bunch of those deals, because I started in the 60s, you know, a lot of that stuff uh, be, uh, came due and continues. They become due with every year because I continue to make records every year. So uh, these things would have been minor annuities or me offsetting advances that I had previously taken. And now they are all giant. Now it's my retirement fund. <laughs> you know, now I have more money in the bank than I've ever had, all because of these. Uh, reversions, I did I say regressions, reversions, you know, things reverting back in the deals that you make around them. So I would not be in dire straits right away, but I still feel the need to remain involved in, uh, in making records for myself and for others in the sense that I haven't learned everything there is. And as long as there's still something for me to learn, I'm going to continue to um, to explore the medium. Okay, now you've produced a lot of very successful records, the biggest being Bat Out of Hell is one of the most successful records of all time. But you sold your producer royalties, right? So A, why did you do that? And B, do you regret it? And C, have you sold your other producer royalties? Uh, that's the only instance when in which I, you know, had someone buy me out. Uh, when Sometime around when uh, when Columbia became Sony, Sony bought out Columbia Records. Uh, Bad Out of Hell was on a subsidiary of Epic, which was a part of the of Columbia Records umbrella. Um, there was a lot of people talking fast and loose about how many Bad Out of Hell records have been sold, and. Uh, Meatloaf and Steinman and their management or their accountants or whatever thought, well, these brags don't equal, you know, the amount of money that we've gotten paid. So we want to audit the label. Auditing is a thing that, um, auditing is a thing that artists do when they think that they haven't been paid all the money that they're owed from a label 
and it involves lawyers and accountants, and you have to spend money to make money. And you don't know whether you actually will, because maybe the audit turns out that, yeah, you haven't paid all the royalties you were owed. But um, they wanted to, Meatloaf and Steinman and their management wanted to uh, have Sony audited and asked if I wanted to participate in it, which meant that I would be also be playing lawyers' fees, et cetera, you know, for however long that dragged out. And quite obviously, we'd be talking about a lot of money. So I said, I don't want to be involved in this. Um, so I offered Meatloaf uh, my points on the record. I said, do you want to buy me out? Uh, and he demurred. And so then I went to Sony and said, do you want to buy me out? Because they'd have to pay me the, the producer's royalties. And they said, sure, we'll buy you out. And what did I do with that money? I bought the property I'm living on today. Do I regret that? Not for a second. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, all your other records, uh, usually a producer's paid from record one. Do you think you're being accounted to properly? Um, I got to the point because uh, after 
after something, anything, I always had a studio of my own. First, it was Secret Sound in New York, and then I had a studio when I moved upstate. So I always had access to a studio, or I could get a studio um, for a pretty good rate. And a lot of the cost for making a record would go in go into studio costs, the hourly cost of of renting a studio. And the longer that an artist will work on the record, the more the cost might soar. So the deal that I would make is it with the label would be give me all the money for the record, all the money, the, the budget for the record, including my producer's advance. And it would be this six-figure lump sum of money. And so whatever I didn't spend on making the record was my producer's advance. Uh, but all of that would be, you know, would be uh, taken off the top. That, all of that had to be amortized before anybody would see further royalties. The only way you get royalties from record one is if you, is if you never took an advance on anything, you know. They first have to defray the advance and then you start making royalties. And because I had this kind of control over the process, it turned out to be uh, very desirable for a lot of labels, especially if they thought the artist was going to go into the studio and start dithering away, you know, and running up the tab, you know, because nobody was actually, you know, keeping a firm hand on the tiller. And I always had impetus to do that because I knew it was coming out of whatever would be my producer's advance. So it kind of worked out for everybody in that sense. Um, but that was in the old, that was in the old days. That's the old record label days. That doesn't exist anymore that much. Yeah. But as I say, some of these records you did obviously earned out. We're an American band. We can go on and on. Do you get paid on those records today? Uh, only if they ever sold anything. Uh, <laughs> Well, some of these records sold a lot. Yeah, so probably no, I did not get paid. But that was that was the very first that was the first time that I found a band and produced their record for Bearsville Records. And yes, quite obviously it uh it didn't sell a lot. Wait, wait, wait. What what, what record what record are we talking about? American Dream. I'm sorry. Okay. The American Dream record. That was the first. Right. Got my Americans mixed up. My manager was Albert Grossman. And it was Albert Grossman's label, Bearsville. So I had no idea what I was getting paid. <laughs> it's, you know, my manager negotiating with the label, and they're both the same person. So, so I had no idea what, you know, what I would be paid for it. No idea what the budget for it was, what they spent for it. But we did it the old-fashioned way. We went into, into a commercial studio and paid the hourly rate, came up with a record, and didn't take awful long then. You didn't spend months making records in those days, unless you were the band. <laughs> but uh, eventually I began to figure out, you know, when I had my own studio that, you know, I could take over, you know, a greater part of the process, relieve everybody of worrying about how much time we were spending in the studio. Indeed, once I moved to act into the studio, we more or less owned it. No one else could come in. And that was a rarity as well, you know, to have your own studio and to completely occupy it 24 hours a day. So uh, tell us about Albert Grossman, thumbs up or thumbs down? And what was his personality like that you saw? A legend in the business. 
Albert um, did a lot for me. I mean, he sort of made me, made me what I am in some ways. And then in the end, he screwed me. <laughs> and that's Albert Grossman, you know? I mean, ask Bob Dylan. So tell us how he screwed you in the end. It was, it was he was notorious for this kind of stuff. He really valued more than anything publishing, uh, ownership or control of the songs, even more than the actual recordings themselves. And uh, it was my last contractual album for Bearsville Records. And he only participated in the publishing as long as I was making records for Bearsville. So if my relationship with Bearsville ended, it also ended my publishing relationship. And so I did the last contractual album. It was called Acapella and delivered it to Bearsville. And I heard nothing back. And then eventually I started to say, what's going on? Have you, have you set a release date for this record? They said, no, we haven't set a release date. And Albert said, well, I'm not going to release this record. And I thought, what's, what in particular is wrong with this record? Uh, and then he lied to me and said Warner Brothers didn't want to release it. And it took me a couple of weeks to get a hold of Mo Austin. And then I finally got him on the phone. He said, I've never heard this record. I didn't even know you had a record. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So... Uh, and so the jig was up at that point and realized that, you know, he was sticking it to me to get uh, more publishing. So what he did is he negotiated a three album deal with Warner Brothers and he got the publishing for those three albums. And then he agreed to release acapella. And I never spoke to him again after that. Do you think you would have been successful as you are if you hadn't met Albert Grossman? Possibly not. Okay. I was just living you- at the at the time I was living with clothiers in the East Village and I was making no music at all. Uh I was uh designing lights in a in a little discotheque. I was doing anything I could to make any kind of money or uh or just stay alive and I was living off the kindness of others and I was hanging out at Steve Paul's The Scene, hoping something musical might happen. I was go to all the jam sessions, you know, maybe a band would happen, something like that. And then uh, I got contacted by the partner of the, um, of the guy who managed the NAS. He was, he and the guy, John Curland, who managed the NAS, they sort of discovered us. But before the NAS broke up, uh, he quit. <laughs> you know, he split up with, uh, with our manager and went to, to work for Albert Grossman. And Albert Grossman said, my, uh, my uh, roster here is pretty gray. They're all like artists who, you know, they're like folk artists. And here it is like 1968. <laughs> yeah, and so... I need somebody, we need some young blood in here. And you know any young blood. And he had watched me uh, sort of take over the production of the Nas albums and thought, well, that's pretty impressive for a young guy. Let's see what he can do. So I was invited to start working for the Grossman organization. And for, at first I was just doing engineering and, and a little production. 
and I was very successful at it. And then after I had done a few projects, I asked for a budget to do a vanity record of my own because I was still writing music. And that turned out to be Runt, the first solo record that I did, and it accidentally had a hit record on it. Okay, why are there multiple iterations of that record? Uh, We did a test pressing, and it became apparent that the sound was much louder on one side than the other. Um, because the volume of a of an LP had to do with how much content was actually on it, which is why like Led Zeppelin records only lasted 20, 25 minutes. You know, they'd have three songs on a side and the whole side would last, you know, 16 minutes or something like that. So if you wanted your records to sound loud, you had to put, less music on them but i had put too much music on the b-side and so we realized i had to edit it and we took three songs and edited them down to a medley and then remastered the record but some confusion in there uh caused them to press a a run of like about five thousand of the rejected masters the ones that sounded louder on one side than the other and so there are a few of those out there still extant, uh, but most of the records, uh, any of the reissues are all of the one with the medley instead of the three full songs. Okay. Now those initial records were via Ampex before they would be, uh, went to Warner Brothers and then the market was flooded with cutouts. Was that something you were aware of on your end? No, I didn't pay much attention to that, but it seems logical. Uh, The deal with Ampex was kind of weird. Um, When Albert decided he wanted his own label, Ayersville Records, instead of going to another, you know, label for distribution, a real record label, he went to Ampex, who only ever did tapes up until that point. They would do reel-to-reel versions of LPs. (laughs) And in which case the volume was uniform throughout, but, uh, and hired a guy. I don't know whether he worked at Ampex or whether it was just another guy, but made essentially a tape company record distribution company. And they didn't realize what the difference was, you know? So that relationship only lasted about a year and they took Bearsville and made a sensible deal with Warner brothers and Warner brothers distributed them until the label folded essentially. Okay. Now the first record has a hit with shitty distribution in terms of the album itself. The second album in my mind is a masterpiece. I prefer that to something, anything to put your heart and soul into that album and have limited commercial success and to not fly above the radar. Was that something you felt and you were disappointed about? Well, you know, not for myself, I'm always disappointed, you know, when radio gets conservative and just starts playing the same music over and over. Um, But this is in the midst of me being one of the most successful producers in the world at this point. And I don't have to worry about the economics of my own records. That was the point, uh, the realization that I had during Something Anything. uh, When people were comparing me to Carole King, is that always the male Carole King? And as much as I was a Carol King fan, I didn't want to be compared to anybody. 
And I started to realize, what's the point of doing music that other people are doing? I have to do music that only I would do. And that's when I built a studio for the purposes of doing the music that only I would do. And, you know, the, the, the market be damned, you know, how, how commercial it was never even occurred to me. But the irony is, uh, well, there are a couple of ironies. One irony is that it completely bifurcated my audience. Anyone who is like, you know, a fan uh, up until something, anything, uh, and didn't make that leap, never bought another record again, and for some reason think I retired from the music business and never <laughs> record another song after that. And they come to the shows, and all they want to hear is, hello, it's me, and I saw the light. And then there are those fans who endured a Wizard of True Star and realized there was something in there, something unique in there, and, and continued on the journey, realizing that the unexpected was part of the reward, you know, that most audience members want more of the same. My audience wants, wants to know what weird hair is up my bum at this point you know so uh and that's uh lasted mostly to this day and it became a generational thing uh about 10 years or so ago a whole generation of younger artists started to discover in particular a wizard of true star uh the first instance of that was tame impala kevin parker asked me to do a remix and said that, you know, it was one of his most influential albums, you know, that his album that he was putting out was his version of Wizard of True Star. Uh, I did a remix for Trent Reznor, and he said that he listened to a Wizard of True Star once a month. <laughs> so it opened up posthumously. It opened up all th this whole window to a younger generation of artists who got tired of doing the same music that everybody does nowadays and do the same thing that I do, which is go back and see what has been done. Uh, even like pr prior to your generation uh, and see if there's anything to learn in it. See if there's some, something that will uh, inspire you to, uh, to change what you're doing or somehow give you license to do something that's out of the ordinary. And what have you gone back and been inspired by? Oh, I have several instances of that. Maybe the most obvious is uh, with a twist uh, where I was approached to, uh, to do new versions of my old classics or standards or whatever you want to call them. And uh, most people would just get out an acoustic guitar and, you know, do a new version. And I had been listening to bossa nova music of the of the of the early '60s, like pre-Beatles. You know, we're talking before the Beatles. Uh, there was a whole era in the late '80s and early '90s when everyone was well, when not everyone, but certain people were transitioning from vinyl to CDs. And the Japanese in particular just got really mental about it. They started going back and finding any obscure vinyl they could find and doing CD re-releases. Re and we were touring Japan a lot in those days. And we would go to this 
record store called Wave, which is a multi-story place with they had had LPs at one floor, but most all of it was CDs. Uh, a lot of special releases and weird packaging and stuff like that. But one of the things that uh, they started uh, started re-releasing were, for instance, uh, Frank Sinatra, The Capital Years. Uh, uh, and this whole uh, genre that they call bachelor pad music or cocktail music, you know, which included bossa nova, included uh, all kinds of like freaky, like Esquivel, you know, uh, Martin Denny, exotica music, that sort of thing. And I got way into that. And so when they asked me to do a new album uh, of, of my standards, I said, I'm going to make a bossa nova album. So we did a whole Bossa Nova album, and then we went out and did a tour in which the stage was a small, like, tiki club, tiki bar every night. That, you know, wherever we were, we were in the same tiki bar, and we did three acts. You know, we started out with a Bossa Nova act, and then we do a sort of a more exotic act, and then we do an after-hours act. And we had tables and a bar and a bouncer. And we would invite people from the audience to come sit in like they were on a tour bus and came to our little Honolulu club to watch us play a set. We would turn them out, everyone bring in a new audience for each set. And by the time we got to the very end of the set, there'd be nothing but one girl and one drunk at the bar. And, <laughs> and he would hit on the girl. We would tell them what they were supposed to do. And he would hit on the girl and the bouncer. We'd kick them out. And that would be the end of the show. Okay. Now, since you put out a lot of records and not all of them were expected by the labels, did you ever deliver one and they said, we don't want to put it out or it's got to be different? There was an instance where uh, I made a, an actually beautiful, magnificent record uh, with a girl named Julie. Oh, gosh. She's going to hate me because I can't remember her name. but. A really, chill. a really terrific record. She was uh, had uh, long been a background singer for Leonard Cohen, but she had an incredible voice and incredible material and great arrangements. It was a terrific record that has never seen the light of day because um, I don't want to grind any axes here, but a certain person, but it was for Mercury Records, and a certain person came in and took over the presidency of Mercury Records and said, any project that was started before I got here is in the dumpster. And it didn't matter what the quality of it was. And historically, you could, if you do the math, you can probably figure out who this prick was. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to name him. I think I do know who it is, but that's okay. And uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of heartbreaking, you know, because it had nothing to do with the quality of the record. You know, it was a completely political decision. And uh, and I think that discouraged her so much that she never went to find another label to pick up the record. So that I I really regret because I thought it was a beautiful piece of work. But Julie Christensen, Julie Christensen. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Brain. How did you, how did you end up as the engineer on stage fright? Well, that was kind of what they brought me in for. 
uh, to take these older acts and, uh, and sort of u- update them. And I don't remember what the very, very first session I did was. It might, they might have put me on some demo sessions or something like that. See if you can you know, just come up with a song out of this artist. Um, then uh, I guess they decided, okay, if we're going to hire this guy, we got to give him some kind of definitive test. So they hired me to um, engineer Jesse Winchester's first album. Uh, Robbie Robertson was producing it, and the and the backup was essentially the band. <laughs> and I uh, was the was the producer. In other words, the producer in the we had to record it in Toronto because. Uh, Jesse Winchester was a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, and then he was living in Montreal. So we had a studio in Toronto, kicked the engineer out of the studio, maybe kept the tape up or something like that. And it was the first time I had a big, serious, you know, session, and I just winged it. I winged it through the whole thing. I winged it through. I knew a little bit about mic placement and stuff from doing the NAS records. Uh, yeah, winged my way through the session. And in the end, they were happy with how I did it and what it sounded like. And so they said, okay, you're doing stage fright. (laughs) That was pretty much um, the very next thing that happened. On the Jesse Winchester record, was Robbie in the studio or were you the de facto producer? No, no. Robbie was, Robbie was the producer. Okay. And now on that record, there was a song that came part of, it became legendary, but never was a hit, Yankee Lady. Did you know that that would be, you know, when you're in the studio and you're hearing these tracks, that would be the first of them. Do you go, wait, there's something about this one. This one is going to go. No, actually, uh, Albert, um, before I went up to do the project, played it for me. He played Yankee Lady. He didn't play any other song. He said, this is the song that has sold this record to me. <laughs> you know, so... So he was uh, he was really high on it and played it for me. He played it for anybody who would listen to it, as a matter of fact. Uh, he thought there was something uh, especially intriguing, not just about the song and the way that he sang it, but something intriguing about the story because it was Jesse Winchester's story going from Arkansas or wherever uh, he grew up to as far north as he could get. So even beyond Yankee, he went Canuck. <laughs> so what was the first project that be, be beyond the, uh, stage fright record that was outside of the Beersville stable? Um, well, as I said, the first, uh, project, the first band I managed to get signed was the American dream. Right. And that, and that was on, that was on Bearsville, but. I think the the first significant one, I was doing stuff for the Bearsville stable. It wasn't always on Bearsville records. Like I went to Nashville and did an Ian and Sylvia record, you know, or to uh, uh, went back to LA and did a James Cotton record. Uh, But they would have been for their own labels, uh, whatever those labels were. I think the ver- first big, you know, the big signature project outside of the immediate stable was Badfinger. 
was straight up. Now, that was a whole troubled project, never mind the ultimate credits. And, well, it was and trouble until I got there. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, these records have been released with your editions and the other people's uh, mixes and productions, and it's black and white. You can see why yours were you know, relevant of emotional things. Yours were the, uh, the ones that were the successful artistically and commercially. Well, when I got there, of course, they had been through two produ- producers already. Jeff Emmerich, who was, uh, had been the Beatles engineer, had done a whole record. And for some reason, it got rejected. And I read later that the American label didn't hear a, a hit song on it. So they said, no, we're not going to put this out. It might have been fine by Apple in England, but apparently the American distributor said no. Uh, so then George got involved, but he hadn't gotten halfway through the record before he got distracted by the concert for Bangladesh and just didn't have the time. Uh, but the other issues with George's thing was that they were sonic in that he was kind of in the thrall of Phil Spector at the time. And Phil Spector doesn't think about a band, you know. As a matter of fact, when Phil Spector produced the Beatles, the first thing he did was slap an orchestra on it, you know. And so he didn't think in terms of bands, you know. But Badfinger was a band, and they needed to sound like a band. And uh, so a lot of the stuff that I got from George just had too much on it. You know, it had well, triple track acoustic guitars. The drums were back in the soup, you know, a la Phil Spector. Um, and it sounded nothing like the Jeff Emmerich stuff. Uh, I didn't tackle it right away. The first thing I did was, oh, look, let's pretend we're doing a new record. You know, before I get into like recovering any of the old stuff let's let's start over and pretend we're doing a new record so we went into the studio and i think the very first thing we did was baby blue uh and we did a few more things and gradually in the process we started looking back at the old material and thinking what should we try and keep here and we knew that day after day should be a keeper but it didn't sound right um so i re-recorded the drums uh, re-recorded a lot of stuff throughout some of the sounds so that it sounded more like a band, uh, that the drums were less soupy. Uh, and on any of the George Harrison tracks that we used, that was more or less the process. Get, get it out of the Spectre zone, a little more into the Bad Finger zone. The Jeff Emmerich stuff was... That was the opposite. It was almost too bare. You know, it was almost a little too raw and there wasn't any effort to, to, you know, to sort of dress up the details. Um, so a combination of those three things eventually went into the record and, you know, I had to somehow try and mix it. Like it sounded it, like it all happened at the same time instead of over the course of like a year and a half or something. Now two members of that band can- Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Committed suicide. Uh, the story is over a lack of royalties, lack of payment. Was that something you saw in those two band members while making this record, that maybe they were on the line or frustrated, or were they just upbeat when you dealt with them? No, it didn't get into any of that stuff. As a matter of fact, I was supposed to produce the second record, the record after that, and came in and did a. Uh, we were we moved into Apple Studios, which had been completed and vacated, and uh, and set up on the first night and did a little bit of. I think we tried to lay down a track the first night, and I came in the second night and they fired me, <laughs> without explanation. <laughs> they just said, "We don't want you to work on the record anymore. See ya." And so from that point on, I knew there was something going on in the band, but I had no idea what it was. And they didn't inform me. And I had to make the assumption that, you know, the reason why I was kind of like on the outside was that I didn't go out drinking at the pub with them or something like that. You know, I didn't pal around with them. I just wanted to get their damn records done. (laughs) So, uh, and so I think that they just felt that there was something that wasn't meshing between us or whatever, or that I was too dictatorial because of what had happened on the last record. And I didn't want this one to start drifting like the last one had. Uh, so that was it. And I didn't hear anything from anybody in the band for years, years, years and years until almost more recently. Uh 
when we did, a, you know, a beat, one of them Beatle tribute shows and me and Joey Mullen were on stage together for the whole thing. And we were, we were fine with each other, probably because we both rather forget that, <laughs> that episode. Okay. But your reputation, I don't know the reality. That's why I'm asking you only you were there was that you were kind of dictatorial in general as a producer. Would that be, is that how you saw it? Well, I was never into the idea of someone come into the studio unprepared, just on the assumption that they're going to make a record or get something done. As I mentioned, I, this, we're in the seventies now, but I came up in the kind of like mid late sixties or my first studio experiences. And you didn't waste time in the studio, you know, when, uh, we were trying to get signed when the NAS was trying to get signed and you would get some demo time in, uh, uh, in probably a studio that the, that the label owned. And they say, you get a half an hour, an hour, play as many songs as you can, you know, <laughs> and that was it. And, you know, overdubbing, we don't have the time for overdubbing, you know, <laughs> just keep, just play songs. And, uh, so you get, you know, and of course you wouldn't get the first take you would play until you got, takes that you wanted them to listen to. And by, before you knew it, you've got two or three songs and a half hour is gone. So going into the studio without being prepared is kind of anathema to me. You know, you go in and you all, you know what you're going to do. Um, and uh, sometimes there would be projects in which the reputation of the band might be on the line. Uh, I never had any friction with Grand Funk Railroad, but it was pretty much understood that this was a reinvention and that I was more or less in charge of it. <laughs> so, uh, or I was more or less uh, in charge of making sure that it succeeded. You know, they already knew what they wanted to do, but everything was brand new for them. They had new management, new record producer, me, um, and they did a you know a pretty spectacular job of adapting to all that and okay, to reinventing so themselves in a way. Let's say uh, with Grand Funk Railroad, since you like people to be prepared, on the We're American Band album, did they come in with all those songs? Exactly. As a matter of fact, you know, they before we did the album, I went out to their, you know, I went out to Flint and uh, sat with the band and listened to them and do their rehearsals. And they were tight when they came in. I mean, they were a live band. Their whole thing was, you know, not, this, their biggest problem in the studio was they kept trying to be a live band in the studio. So they do these long jams, you know, and stuff that might be entertaining live, but they weren't cream. So they weren't so much entertaining on record. And so they managed to, to reinvent themselves as a songwriting unit. You know, you write songs, you don't write wrong jams, you write songs with verses, choruses, bridges, all that stuff. Uh, and they set themselves to that and did a good job of it. And they came in and it was all rehearsed. I mean, the story of Amer of the single We're American Band, not just the album, is, is truly phenomenal. Because uh, they had the entire project timed from the first moment we went into the studio till the release of the record. The first thing we did, the first day, we recorded the track to We're an American Band. 
the next first thing next day, we finished the vocals and overdubs, mixed it, and went right into mastering on the second day and mastered the single. We didn't even have a B-side yet because we hadn't recorded anything else yet. <laughs> and essentially mastered it, sent it out to be pressed. And in those days, you could uh, chart a record not based on actual sales, but based on pre-orders. And, and, and uh, also based on ads, on radio ads, you know, how many people add the record. Uh, a week after we master the record is when it's scheduled to be released. So it goes, it goes immediately to the plant. They're pressing uh singles like mad and sending them out to all the radio stations the next week the record charts in the top 40 <laughs> week after we recorded it it's charted in the top 40 and it's on the radio in a week <laughs> okay that grand funk was a reviled band you work with them they have this monstrous single which everyone liked so two things. Did you understand it would be such a monstrous single? And after this success, either your or Albert's phone must have been ringing off the hook. Uh, part B, yes. <laughs> <laughs> part B, exactly. Um, I had no idea what to expect when I was going into it, except what had happened previously with Grand Funk Railroad. And they had, you know, two issues. So previously mentioned issue was that they were too jam oriented and not song oriented enough. And I think they were aware of that and had to do that. But they were also, you know, the issues with their management were, was also an issue with their production because their manager was also their producer and he was a terrible producer. <laughs> right. Terry Knight. Yeah. The raw records didn't sound good. And he let all this flab go by, you know, it's just, you know, it, they were it, just not good records. Okay. The only thing about it from the outside, it looks like you were the genius that made it happen. You're telling the story. Like you were like just the Mason putting the shit together. No, they had that whole, they had a whole plan, a whole scheme okay. for their reinvent complete scheme for their reinvention. When I but got involved if, with them. But if they'd had a different producer, since the song was already written, where it was, there must've been demos. Was your version similar to the demo, or was it your spin that put it over the top? Possibly my spin. I got a lot of complaints from the keyboard player because I said, do this. Dink, 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 in the chorus. He said, well, I sound like a, I sound stupid playing like dink, 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 dink. I said, just do it. All right. <laughs> it's a little subliminal thing in there, you know. If you pay too much attention to it, it doesn't work, but it's just a little thing in there that gives the chorus a lift. Oh, I know that sound. Absolutely. And I, I don't know that another producer would have suggested that or forced the keyboard player to do that. <laughs> okay. So now Albert's fielding all these offers. How do you decide who to work with? And what is, since they're looking to you, what are you saying back? What are your requirements? I'm not talking about cash, like how much time, what I need, does, do the songs have to be done? Well, I think that a uh, a signature production that came sometime after that, that actually sort of characterized my production style and changed my whole approach. And that was the New York Dolls. 
they were, you know, I, they were kind of like half the problem. I, I, had, I had other issues which I incorporated into my style, but it all came down to the mixing for the on that record in a way, you know, because uh, capturing the performances was kind of like uh, wildlife, <laughs> like if you're a wildlife photographer, you know, and you're just trying to get that perfect moment. Because it's only a moment. There's so much chaos going on all the time that you're never sure when that moment is going to be there. There are all kinds of people hanging around the studio all the time, groupies and journalists and stuff. And the band isn't the most disciplined band in the world. In other words, it's, you get a couple takes done and then somebody or a couple people just will wander off. They're probably consuming something somewhere in the shadows it's uh, a bit of a carnival atmosphere for the whole thing, but then it comes down to the mixing, integrating everything you got into something that sounds like a record. And th there were two issues with that. One is the band all wanted to be there while I was mixing. And I've had this experience before where the band is all there when you're mixing. Stage fright, <laughs> the band's all there when you're mixing. It takes forever. You know, and sometimes it's a completely futile exercise because everybody only hears themselves when you're building the mix. A guitar player only hears the guitar, you know, singer only hears his voice, a drummer only hears the drums, and they're all whispering in my ear, could you push me up a little bit, please? You know, push, push the vocal up just a little bit more. You know, after a couple of run-throughs, you look down at the console and all of the faders are pinned at the top. And you have to start all over again. So I realized after that, that, you know, having the band in there, having the act at all in the room while you're building a mix is a mistake because they don't hear the whole mix. They only hear like the little bits in the mix and they can't pull back far enough to hear the whole thing. And it, you know, and that didn't make the record any better them all being there <laughs> for the mixes because half the time they were in, too much of a hurry to really do it properly. Like they'd have a gig somewhere in Long Island to get to and say, okay, we got to wrap the session up. Let's, you know, we got to go to Long Island. And then worst of all, uh, they mastered it on what at the time was a relatively antiquated lathe, uh, a non, uh, well, you know, I don't want to get, this is a little bit too technical, but it used to be when you cut a record, the, um, the, what they call the pitch, how far into the, into the lacquer, the, the needle goes was fixed and it had to be fixed to not create a groove that was so wide that it bumped into the next groove. So the loudest moment in your whole record determined exactly where everything would be, you know, and and you couldn't compress any more sound than that. Uh, after a while, they got smart and they developed what they call a variable pitch lathe, which means you've got, as the tape is running through, you've got uh, what you would call look ahead. You've got a head that's reading the sound that's about to come and measuring the volume in it. And so if th there's not a lot of volume, then you don't have to dig so deep with the lathe and you can pack more sound into a record by doing that 
So essentially, the record could have been could have had a much better sound if they had done it like a Sterling sound. But instead, they did it in a on the lathe that was in the next room to the mixer. That was like that some label had essentially sold to them because it was obsolete. So the very first releases of the record, the sound wasn't what it could have been. Probably later releases sounded better. So why do you call this a signature production? Because that's when I learned never allow the artist in the room while you're setting the mix up. You set up okay, the mix so- and then you invite them in and say, what do you think of this? And they say, okay, fix this, this, and this. I say, okay, go away. I'll fix this, this, and this. Then come back and listen to it. Because it's hard okay. enough for me to retain my objectivity listening to this dozens of times. You're not going to do a better job than I am. It's like when, you know, this is a minor version when someone says, I need you to hear this record and they want to sit there while you listen to it. It's like, no, I got to listen to it alone, you know, on my own time. Well, it's partly that, you know, I don't want people, you know, yelling, chattering in the back of me about what's going on while I'm trying to focus on the sound. Yeah. You got to get in the zone. But did you also mean that that record opened more production doors? Oh, not really. Yeah. Cause I mean that record, I have the early version and I saw the band cause there was a lot of hype on the record. You know, I might say, and you might disagree that a lot of your records are known for a lot of high end, which, you know, more of an AM record sound than as opposed to the stereo, uh, sound, uh, more of a compressed sound. Is that something that rings a bell or you say no fucking way? Uh, I don't know that it's it's the same for all records, but I do like to make records that are full spectrum. Uh, there's also the question of what are people actually listening to the music on? Uh, uh, and, and nowadays it's like, there is no target, you know, there's no actual target <laughs> anymore. People be listening on the crappiest earbuds they can find, or they might be listening with, you know, new $550 Apple <laughs> headphones, which mystifies me, but the audience doesn't care about the sound for the most part. I mean, maybe some audiophiles in the audience, might care about the sound but you know ever since beats by dr dre you know uh branded distortion is a product <laughs> you know you completely blow out the low end and suddenly you know people are like wow i you know i'm hearing something that i never heard before that's not supposed to be there you know <laughs> and so uh there is no actual target anymore for sound you know it's whatever you're mixing on to make it sound as good as it can on the on the stuff that you've depended on uh, all this time, but you know, as far as the high or low end, it probably has to do with the equipment that I prefer to mix on, but also that I like to hear those sounds. You know, I like to I like to hear that really high ting on the bells. You know, if there are bells in there, you know, uh, I like to hear the low end as well. And the biggest problem with my records historically has been when we go to master them, they're too long. And that means the, that the very low end has to get rolled off. And that's why they sound more toppy than a lot of records. It has right. mostly, 
to do with, you know, the LP era when we had to get them onto vinyl and the things that we had to do in order to fit them. So we'd usually have to add compression during the uh, mastering to keep peaks from uh, uh, essentially determining, you know, the maximum top end and then everything having to be lower than that in that, you know, in terms of that variable pitch thing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Now, are you a fan of digital or are you more of an analog guy? And you talk about equipment, what type of equipment do you like to use? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not a fan either way. I just have to say that everything has become so much easier and we have so many more possibilities in the digital realm than we ever did in the analog realm. Uh, just the very simple process of making a backup of something. You know, which was a rare thing. You know, not many studios actually made backups of the tapes that you made, particularly full 24-track backups. Um, it's expensive and time-consuming, and so people didn't do it that often. And then you have some accident that's completely ruined your master, you know, <laughs> because it's analog, you know. Uh, anything that was mastered on a certain kind of tape previous to a certain date suffers from this disease called sticky shed, which is if you went back to the original tapes, all of the oxide starts falling off of them, you know? Uh, whereas digitally, whatever, you know, whatever Neil Young finds wrong with it, at least you can make a carbon copy of whatever you got, you know? You can make infinite carbon copies and they don't take a fraction of the time that it takes to make an analog copy. So in terms of the convenience, uh, you know, this laptop that I'm talking to you on now, that's my studio. And everything that what I've ever needed is inside, is inside it right now. And this is a MacBook Pro? Yes, it is. Okay. How did you get so into computers? Uh, when I was very young, well, I guess there's two reasons. One is I grew up in a household that was, my dad was an engineer at DuPont, and so uh, I was tech comfy. Uh, my dad knew how to do all those things. So I expected that that was a realm of knowledge that I should eventually inherit. You know, he had the big tool bench and the craftsman lathe, you know, and all the tools. And he knew how to do schematic circuits and the, that sort of thing. So there was that comfort level with technology. Uh, and also I had a, you know, a particular interest and it kind of started, it might've started when I saw uh, Forbidden Planet and Robbie the Robot. And I thought, I want one of those. Kids are bullying me all the time and I want one of those. <laughs> and so uh, I realized eventually, well, if you build one of those, it's got to have a brain, some kind of a brain. And computers are electronic brains. And so about at the age of nine or 10, I started studying uh, digital electronics or, you know, uh, uh, logic, uh, essentially logic gates and things like that. I don't know if you know about this, but they've got yeah. ands and ors and all this stuff, right, right, things, right. At the bit things at the one bit level. And I started studying it then when I was really young. Uh, realized that a lot of it ran on alternate number systems. So I began to all understand, you know, base eight 
you know, base 16, base 12, whatever the uh, odd, you know, different number systems might be. So when I got to the new math in high school, I was acing it. You know, none of the other kids knew what they were talking about when they said, okay, eight, nine, A, B, C, D, E, F. <laughs> Wait a minute. How's that work? I totally grokked it. So when I got to high school, I was either going to be, I was either going to go to tech school and learn to be a computer programmer or go to no school at all and be a musician. And fortunately for me, I got into a band and became a musician. And that later in life afforded me the time to learn how to program computers. Okay. When do you know the personal computer era really starts turn of the decade, late seventies, early eighties. When did you get a personal computer? I got every personal computer that was ever offered. Got very little out of most of them, but I got every one. I got an Altair. I got an Altair kit, an Altair 8008 kit, which had to build, you know, solder the board and everything. Uh, The only way you could communicate with it was through a teletype with a tape reader, with a paper tape reader on it, paper tape with a bunch of little holes. To program it, you had to boot it up, you powered it, and then you went through this whole little sequence of switching these micro switches on and off in a very particular sequence, which was the bootstrap. And that would make it able to read the tape reader, the paper tape reader, which would then read in a whole program, which would allow you to have a really blocky picture of what looks like liquid going into a martini glass and super low risk. And that whole process would take you like 15, 20 minutes to do that. Then I got, you know, I remember I got a pet computer, which was a thing that looked like, you know, it it looked like kind of like almost like an Apple II on the bottom, but then it had a head on it, like a little head. And I imagined teaching it to roll around, you know, programming it so it could roll around on wheels. I never quite got that far. And... Things never got really productive until the Apple II Plus. Because then you had a real programming language. You, all you had did was turn it on and it came up ready to take your commands. Uh, it had color of a sort. It was a really bizarre way to put color on the screen. Um, and when I got it, I took a year off from touring and learned how to program. And then the end of it, I knew how to program what they call assembler language, which is talking to the computer in the only language is understands 256 commands. And that's it. <laughs> okay. The number 256, is that based on the chip? And then there became more commands. That that's a 16, a 16 bit number. And each number would mean like this number might, you know, might be one or something like that. And it means put the next eight bits into the accumulator. <laughs> The next one would be, add these eight bits to the accumulator. The next one would be, put the accumulator into the address specified by the next two bits. <laughs> it's the lowest level that you can possibly get to. Well, practically get to. Then you became, yeah, you became a big Amiga guy with a toaster, right? Uh, yeah. I was never into the Amiga much until I got into the video toaster. 
And that was really not a relationship with the machine. It was a relationship with the company that made the video toaster. And uh, there's a, uh, I was always into the video graphics, always wanted to do a video that was all uh, computer graphics, but it was not practical financially for me at the time. And then I went to the biggest computer graphics show in the world. It's called SIGGRAPH, Special Interest Group for Graphics of the uh, International Engineering, whatever it is, Society. And saw the video toaster for the first time running inside an Amiga. And I thought, wow, I could afford that. So I bought three thinking, you know, it'd be enough for me to do my computer video. And I realized that, you know, once I got it started, man, it's going to take me a year to do with three computers. So I sent what I had to New Tech, the company that made the video toaster. And they say, wow, this is good. If you could make finish the whole thing, it'd be a great demo for the video toaster. So they sent me 30 video toasters. <laughs> and I rented an office space in Sausalito and sent them all up and set them to work and sneaker netted them because there was no networking at the time for them. Uh, sneaker net, in other words, put a big fat hard drive, connect it up to the computer, fill it up, take it off and put another computer hard drive on there. Take the hard drive that you filled up and write all those frames out to a video disc recorder, then wipe the drive and start all over again. And then it only took me a month to do. Well, a month is better than a year, but you said you, you said you had an actual business. What did that business look like with deliverables, et cetera? Well, it never turned into a real business. It was a partnership with New Tech. See, once okay. I finished, once I finished Change Myself, which was the song that I did the video for, they flew me out to Wichita, Kansas, which is where they were centered at the time, no longer, and uh, showed me around the place and everything. And, they, and the next morning, I was going to fly home. They took me out to a diner for breakfast and said, would you <laughs> like to start a studio? And we'll bankroll the studio. And what you'll do with the studio is help us develop the software, you know, help us push it along and create demos for the software and hopefully ultimately become a business. So we did a lot of the former, but was never able to do the latter because we were in Sausalito. We were not in LA or New York, you know, and most people were doing their business in those hubs. Okay. So you talk about, you know, leaving Sausalito for Hawaii and about all the investment bankers as opposed to the engineers. Did you also burn out on the scene? I mean, for those of us who lived through it, the Beatles and what came after was a huge left turn or right, depending on which direction you want to view it from what had come before the computer revolution which started for people like you and round, you know, just before 1980. And then the average person caught on and 1995 or six with AOL, the internet, and then it ended like five or seven years ago. Do you, are you still as addicted or at one point you say not as excited about it anymore? Well, it certainly has morphed into uh, a different thing. Uh, for one thing in those days, connectivity was almost always point to point, you know, <laughs> it's like, you had a modem and someone else had a modem and somehow you could manage to get them connected and do send some sort of data. I don't know, but it was way before the world of like 
user interface philosophy and uh there certainly was no social media as we know it now it was AOL kind of you know right. pretty tame by comparison uh the internet was not really a thing yet um and i kind of went through the whole ev- evolution of all those things and i recall going to some of the very first conferences about monetizing the internet and it's where i came up with the idea for patronet i was at a conference and they're thinking about all the possible ways that we could do commerce uh using internet technology and i had proposed the idea of eliminating the middleman that the record label represented in other words traditionally you would get money from the label to make your records but the label expects to get the money from the people who buy your records and the people who buy your records don't feel they have a relationship with the label they feel they have a relationship with you so the label is the middleman and the internet would allow you to eliminate the middleman go directly to your fans and have them underwrite the production of your records by getting involved in a subscription service it all seems so obvious now but no one had thought of that in the old days of the 90s and so uh that was when i said about to you know create this thing to be able to uh build something that was a combination service delivery and social media sort of platform all in one and ran it for a while and it went up and down turned out to be technologically uh just almost too much to deal with because of lack of standards apple and microsoft were still battling it out you know who's going to dominate here like one would wipe out the other you know and so there was always you had to do things twice everything had to be done at least twice one for microsoft and one for apple but worse than that you only had to do it once for apple but you'd probably have to do it a dozen times for microsoft because microsoft didn't make the machines people built their own machines and people didn't have the time even know how to work their damn machines you wind up doing microsoft's customer service <laughs> and it was just it was a nightmare and then you add the social media component on top of it and you know knowing what we know now about people and what they'll say when you can't poke them in the face after saying it you know it's just eventually i sort of like gave it up that doesn't mean that it couldn't work but you'd have to you'd have to know what you're dealing with up front and have you know real solutions for them it can't turn into the cesspool that facebook has become okay you talk about that cesspool you've actually in the last few years have evidence uh some political views what is your political view in the country at this point in time and what responsibility or action do you want to take or not take Well, I never make an assumptions that I'm a celebrity. I know that I have my fan base. And I've been dealing with these issues amongst my fan base. Uh my feeling is that anyone who does anyone who gets upset listening to Tin Foil Hat, not really a fan anyway. I mean, they don't understand the greater oof of what I'm doing. Uh, they just came to hear hello it's me. 
So if I lose those people, I always lose them. I always lose them if they don't show up for 30 years and then realize I'm not going to do hello, it's me. And then they say, I'll never buy a ticket to this guy again. <laughs> it's, you know, it's just part of, you know, it's part of life. Uh, I make up for it, as I say, by like gaining younger audience, which you have to do anyway. You know, your older audience is checking out in so many ways. So you always have to refresh your audience. How do, how do you do that? You do it by showing interest, you know, in the things that the younger audience is interested in. And being involved with uh, artists that the younger audience is interested in. It's why my last record and the record that I'm working now are aggressive collaborations. It's me introducing myself to new audience with the full realization that my own, audi- old, my own audience is bound to thin out just by natural attrition. So, um, yeah, just, you know, I've been self-consciously sort of taking every opportunity I can to work with younger artists and inherit in some small way their audience. And you never know nowadays how, how these things spread, you know, the, how a meme gets spread in, you know, in any particular way. That's kind of the science of, uh, of promotion nowadays, you know. Uh, that's why there are Facebook promotion departments trying to figure out how your meme gets spread, what the things that you have to do, you know, to maximize that. Okay. In terms of younger audience, you can work with younger acts. Is there a specific type of sound that you would employ to reach a younger audience? Nope. Not really. No. Okay. Uh, no, you, you just want to work with someone who has an audience. <laughs> Whatever their sound might be, you know. Or someone who could potentially have an audience, you know. I'm not necessarily picky about the size of the of the audience. They could be just starting out. Um, that's fine with me. Okay. So you had a very active production career, then it slowed down. What can you tell us about that? And do you have any offers at this date or are those dried up? Well, the um the production thing, you know, is I don't know whether it's, I, I could say that's like cyclical, whether the kind of producer that I am would ever come back because it's often reflective of the greater music scene and what's happening out there. When we started being able to, certainly when we started being able to pass files around, file sharing, uh, you could entertain the possibility of working with people that you wouldn't able, be able to work with before simply because of the physical distance and and whatever restrictions that might impose and so that probably gives people uh, ideas in a well in a way music has changed a lot uh, especially in terms of the artists who are uh, noteworthy for it and it isn't necessarily because they are selling records records as some are are becoming a somewhat obsolete form uh, because music isn't just for musicians. There are a lot of people who want to be a personality. My brand is me. You know, it isn't any particular thing that I do. I'm the brand. And the brand needs a theme song. So I'm going to record my own theme song. But the music doesn't mean a whole lot more to me than designing a pair of shoes, perhaps, or showing up dressed really crazy at a red carpet event. 
or something like that. The I'm going to make my money off of merchandise. I'm going to make my money off of a commercial. I'm going to make my money possibly off of a licensing deal for this song. But I'm likely not going to make my money by trying to sell records. Because <laughs> that time has kind of passed. Now, there are certainly collectors who will buy the vinyl thing, you know, but most of the royalties, such as they are, that are being tracked, are being tracked electronically, you know, Spotify, YouTube, all of the big, what are now Apple, all of the big music delivery services. That's where the royalties are coming from, but they're not the kind of royalties that you would get if you were, you know, selling records the old fashioned way, because the music is so easy to share. It's an advertisement for yourself. It's an advertisement for your concert tickets where you will, where you have always made way more money than you did with a recorded artifact. Okay. We grew up in an era where music drove the culture was everything. Great burst of creativity and explosive market share, just like there subsequently was with computers and the internet. Directly, what do you think of today's music? Not much. <laughs> Not a lot. You know, it's I don't. It's like I don't listen to the radio and I don't listen to, you know, popular streams and things like that. I like to be a little bit more targeted in what I listen to. But in terms of gauging what is successful in the music business, I mean, there's probably no better gauge than who they allow to be. Uh, musical guests on Saturday Night Live. And I have to say 70% of the time, I have to mute it. I can't listen to it. It's just it's just that, exactly what I say. It's somebody's theme song, you know? And it's just as much a soundtrack to they're shaking their giant ass in the camera as it is listenable music. And so I don't have a lot of hopes at this point for the kind of movement that let's say even something like grunge represented, you know, where it was more or less a wholesale um, rebuke of a way of making records and a way of writing songs and, and and that sort of thing. Uh, There was, I guess the EDM movement that came in the, in the aught twenties and the, and in, to the early 2010s, but uh, that was something that was kind of always there. That kind of music is always lurking around in dance clubs and things like that. And it became big when festivals became the thing to do, the place to play, rather than doing your own long laborious tours, you play summer festivals for hundreds of thousands of people. So, and in the end, it's still just marketing probably for something else besides the music. You get paid an obscene amount of money to play, you know, a, a big festival. And uh, so you don't care so much about making music on individual sales of the song. Okay. And the time you have left, which could be one minute or 25 years or so, you always say you're learning. What would you like to accomplish in this time you have left? knowing that you always keep the target a little further than achievements, you much have on your mind things you would like to do. Well, uh, I've filled my plate up pretty well at this particular moment. You know, I don't really have the time 
to speculate on what I might do after 2021. I know what I'm doing in 2021. I'm getting this. Um, I'm getting this virtual show done. Uh, I am still working on re recording projects. I've got a recording project of my own, new collaborations, which hopefully will be finished and released sometime this year. We're releasing singles in the meantime. Uh, I've got, I'm actually involved in some production as well. I'm involved in a fairly major production as we speak, which is driving me a little crazy, but uh, because of all the other things that I have to do, and I don't know exactly what the timeline of that will be, but that's a large thing on my plate as well. So I'm my free time next year, if I have any, and I'm allowed to, I'm going to travel to some of those places <laughs> that I like to go to. And then uh, by the fall, by the end of the year, I'll be out on tour again and then home again by next Christmas. Okay, a couple of quick questions. Do you play music? Like, we're talking now, but if we weren't, would you be playing music in the background or generally speaking not? No, I'd be working on music in the background. And how much you, in a day are you working on music every day? I do work on music every day, but you'd be surprised how much of it just goes on up here. He's pointing to his head since we don't have video. I pre-visualize pre almost everything that I do. I don't just like start doing it. I imagine it in as much detail as I can muster before I start to do it. Uh, so like, uh, let's say I'm working on a song. I will work on it very intensely for an hour. And then depending on how I feel, I may take a break and come back to it, or I may move on to something else. Like my brain is too full of that for the moment and I have to clear it out. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of time actually in front of the computer for me to get a lot done. Uh, I have all of the tools that I need immediately accessible to me. Um, and I tend to make the decisions fairly quickly. Um, I tend to, you know, if something works for me, I... I kind of know it. And if it doesn't work, I will change it right away. So I don't have to spend hours and hours and hours pouring my ears with sound. I think about what I'm going to do. The music is in my head. And so when I get actually in front of the computer, I'm as productive as I can possibly be. And what musical artists are you a fan of? I've been fans over the years of a lot of musical artists. I'm trying to think of someone, you know, a more recent vintage. No, I don't need. I don't need something to wow my audience to show that you're young and hip. But like, what do you? What would be your go-to records? Uh, go-to records. Well, you know, then it sounds like I'm being too hip. You know, because I might go back and listen to some Ravel again. You know. Okay, well that's reasonable. Uh, you know, it's that he. You know, Maurice Ravel was such a big influence on the way I hear things harmonically, and you know, I still marvel at you know, the sensibility and the skill behind it. And it's kind of a reminder of what real musicianship is for me. We get so distracted by the personality aspects of what we do because most often if people know your song, you're somehow going to get in front of their face, you know. And in the old days, you know, people might never know who the genius behind that magnificent performance of uh of Laval's 
was, you know, and that's uh, something that I, you know, it's not that I long not to be in the public eye. I can handle it. I'm used to it. But just the idea of thinking of yourself as a musician, not as a personality and trying to just get into that head, not think about how the audience is going to respond to it, but think solely about what you want to create. The moment that the atmosphere, the feeling that you want to create, you dig into yourself, find something that's real in yourself and try and objectivize that and not worry about what the reaction is going to be. And are you doing music all day or are you also a reader streaming TV? I do all kinds of things all day. The reason why I don't take uh, interviews early is because I've I go through a morning exercise, morning brain exercises. I will do as many crossword puzzles I, as I can find, jigsaw puzzles, Sudokus, uh, <laughs> all kinds of stuff just to work my brain out for up to two hours before I do anything serious during the day. Every day? Every day. What do you, what's the best crossword puzzle for you? Well, I mean, the most challenging, the best, I guess, would be like Saturday New York Times. Okay. And what I do you actually, think about the Wall I actually have fans and friends who are cruciverbalists. So <laughs> I am somewhat into that world. Okay. And then the rest of the day, once you're, you know, up and running, or do you watch streaming TV? Do you read books? If it's time to do something like this, I'll do this. I'll be reading books. Or I'll be learning something. I have to do graphics. I have to do video. I did six uh, hour long episodes of a video kind of lifestyle show. And each episode of that took me probably at least four days to put together. So I'd be doing video. I, you know, am learning things. I spent the first six months almost every day doing computer code. So it could be anything, you know, it's not, not any particular thing. And if it's like a Saturday, we have big family meals and I might spend half the day just cooking. Wow. You good cook? Yes, I am. And when your go-to dish or cuisine would be? Well, I have several dishes that I can do. I can cook you a mean duck with nice really? crispy skin. Crab risotto is a good one. Uh, yeah, I can cook. On that note, Todd, thanks so much. We've delved into a lot of topics. You're really a thinker and your analytical, uh, your analysis of certain things is the most interesting. Thanks for taking this time. My pleasure, Bob. And I'm sure we'll be doing this again. Sometimes. Okay. I look forward to it if you're up to it. You know, it's funny because I feel some of this stuff you've been asked so many times, I'm wary of asking it because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's like play your hit. They don't want to do it. But, you know, there's always new things to be uncovered if you're not uh, tired of talking about these subjects. Well, you know, there isn't a whole lot new, but, <laughs> you know, there is what's happening now. And certainly the background helps to inform it. So I don't mind doing it. Okay, till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.